Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Good morning. This is Attorney Vince Davis. This is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives, or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning. Today we're going to be talking about relative placement. It's a it's a topic that I keep getting calls about during the week from relatives who are trying to get children out of foster care. There is or there has been in the last year a couple of new laws that have been implemented that are slowing down the placement of children in relative care. And in fact, uh, someone sent me an article about it um, recently, and it is an article that explains that California is going through a process where they may be um, trying to uh, change these laws because the placement of children with relatives is taking so long. So this article was from the Los Angeles Daily News, and it was entitled, California Bills Target Lengthy Foster Parent Approval Process. And it was by Jeremy Ludenbach, uh, and he writes for the Chronicle of Social Change. And the date on the article was uh, March 7, 2018, so it's, it's definitely timely. It says that California legislators have introduced two new bills aimed at easing the funding delays facing by thousands of new foster parents in the state and an unforeseen byproduct of the state's foster care reform. As the state implements broad changes to its child welfare system through the Continuum of Care Reform Act, one of the biggest challenges has been moving foster parents and relative caregivers through the new approval process. Since the start of last year, many new foster parents and relative caregivers, both now known as resource families in California, have struggled to make their way through the resource family approval process as a result of more stringent requirements for relatives. Because the state now prevents families from receiving reimbursements for children in their care until they are through the RFA process, thousands of families in the state are currently taking care of foster children without a regular funding source, including many relatives who have accepted an emergency placement. According to a survey, 44 California counties in December 2017 only 26% of RFA applications in those counties had been approved, 19% of applications have been withdrawn, and 54% or 8,831 families were still waiting for approval. In Los Angeles County, 
Only 5% of approved families made it through the RFA process within 90 days. The amount of time the process is supposed to take in 2017. In December, more than 1,052 families in the county had been waiting for approval and subsequent foster care payments for more than five months while taking care, while taking care of a child. Assembly Bill 2183 would create an immediate source of funding for resource families who take in a child on an emergency basis. Introduced by Assemblywoman Blanca E. Rubio, a Democrat from Baldwin Park, the bill calls on the state to, to use two existing pots of money to support research, resource families during the process. The state's allocation of the Federal Temporary Assistance for Needy Families block, it's a block grant, and the state's approved Relative Caregiver Funding Program. Those funds would cover monthly reimbursement payments to families for children for up to 12 months. The current basic rate in California is $923 a month per child. According to the California Department of Social Services, which oversees the county-run foster care agencies in the state, about 4,600 homes have been approved for the new approval process, but 3,100 families in the state remain in limbo and are taking in children as an emergency placement before completing the RFA process, preventing them from receiving reimbursements for foster care. Some of the households are eligible for CalWORKs payments, that's California's version of TANF, but that is often half or less of the monthly foster payments from the state. LA County currently provides a $400 emergency stipend for three months to caregivers who have taken in foster children while they're in the process of working through the RFA process. Angie Schwartz, policy director with the Alliance for Children's Rights, said that the emergency placements often fall hardest on relative caregivers who take in children with little preparation or warning. In practice, this has meant that some caregivers have had to deal with months of financial strain and hardship, leading to the disruption of some placements, according to Schwartz and other advocates. While it is well-intentioned to have a more robust approval process, Unintended consequence, that is, when we do what we know is good for kids, which is to connect them with the people they know, it's families that are bearing the price, bearing the price of that reform, Schwartz said. By the end of 2019, all children living in the home of relative caregiver or foster family in the state must pass through the new approval process. According to the, according to the most recent numbers from the state, there are more than 41,000 children in the state placed with either relatives or foster parents. The bulk of these homes will need to convert by the end of next year, providing pressure on advocates, wand policymakers to prevent further strains on the system. That's the focus of the bill from Senator Holly Mitchell, Democrat, Senate Bill 1083. The legislation aims to streamline some parts of the approval process to make it easier on families taking care of kids now and prevent a possible exodus of caregivers at the end of 2019. SB 1083 
would grandfather in existing caregivers, allowing them to bypass parts of the cumbersome approval process. It would also require counties to complete the RFA process in 90 days when the relative and non-related extended family members are involved. Failure would promote a family court judge to set a hearing within 14 days to assess progress of the application. The legislation would also clarify language to make sure that existing guardianship and informal placements with caregivers aren't jeopardized by the new RFA process. According to Ray Satorio, Mitchell's communication director, California needs to take quick action to resolve the backlog of RFA applications and to ensure that it does not jeopardize longtime caregivers. If they've been in the system for a number of years, They've already been vetted, Soretto said. Social workers visit their home pretty regularly, so we're confident that they will be able to take care of these kids. Sotero said CDSS is supportive of the bill so far and is working with the senator's office about how to grandfather in caregivers who have been part of the state's foster care system prior to January 1, 2017. He said that the bill will likely mandate checks and some sort of security check, like fingerprinting, for existing caregivers who want to continue taking care of the children in their home. Schwartz of the Alliance said that the coming conversation of thousands of caregivers is a looming issue for the state as it seeks to create more placements in foster homes and fewer congregate care settings like group homes. Quote, we're trying to address these issues before it becomes a problem, unquote. She said, the counties haven't, the counties haven't started converting those caregivers yet because they still are busy trying to approve the new families that are walking through the door. Uh, the Chronicle of Social Change is published by Fostering Media Connections. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that harnesses the power of journalism and media to drive public and political will behind reforming the systems that serve vulnerable children, youth, and families. So that was an article that uh, someone sent me um, regarding the foster care system and the reforms. And one of the important parts of all of that, which is um, the financial part of the system, In the past, um, I've told people a strategy that I like to use with respect to getting children placed. I'm going to talk about that strategy in a few minutes. Right now, I'm going to take a call, and the first call is from area code 310, ending in 08. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? I have both. Good morning, Vincent. How are you? Good. Go ahead. My story, my story goes back years um, with, with abuse with um, DCFS. And my son was taken away from me in 2012. And I got him back in 2013 because of the allegation that my son made. And then later on, the case was closed. They gave him back to both parents. And then in 2015, it was another case opened by the father 
of abuse, child abuse, um, allegation about me. And the case was open for a few months, and they found out the father was coaching the child to say it. And then it was another case open in 2016, allegation against the father, and they removed the child from the father this time. And found out through the son that the father and the social worker been having a, a relationship for like five or six years. And that was the same social worker that removed my son from me. And when I found out, me and the detective and the social worker on the new case, they um, removed the case, I mean, they, they, they transferred the case. The case was transferred like three times because the social worker had gave the father information on the, on the case when she was not on the case. And so the detective had did some work and found out that the father and the social worker was girlfriend and boyfriend. And uh, she told DCFS that the child needed to remove from the father because of the danger. So they gave it to me. Hold on a second. Okay. Hold on a second. Let me ask you something. When did you find out that the social worker and the father were boyfriend? What month and year did you find that out? I found out in March um, 2016. Okay, keep going. And uh, the detective started doing work, doing some investigation. She called me, and she asked me because she had to took a leave when she took when the case was open. And she told me she'd be back, and when she come back, she wanted to interview our son. And when she came back, she called me and she said, "Did you did you talk to the father?" And I said, "No." She said, "The father been calling me." And I don't know how he knew I was on the case. Only person knew I was on the case is you and a new social worker. So she said, well, I'm going to do some investigation and find out how did he know that I was on the case without even talking to him first. So they did all kind of investigation and found out that the social worker, the old social worker, had got into my file and would told the father all this information, what was going on. And so... And I learned this in, um, I think it was June 2006, no, July, July 2016, June or July of 2016 when they, when they moved the case, transferred to another division because of the, of the social worker um, giving the father all the new information on the case. And so when I found out, I wrote letters out, and I wrote letters out to Director Brownie about this issue and see if he could step in and find out why is this social worker, she falsified documentation. She took my son from me for no reason because she was trying to look out for her for the boyfriend so I could pay him child support for those, um, like, almost a year. So when they got in touch with me, Brownie did, and they said, told me they was going to do an investigation. They, go, they was going to bring the internal affairs in and investigate this case, which they did. They had an investigator came out in J- July 2016. And he came over and interviewed me. I didn't want them interviewing my son anymore because he's already been traumatized through all or he's been interviewed with everyone. And so they interviewed me and they told me they was going to get back with me and they're going to, because they got nine more people they wanted to investigate about this case. And then in 2017, January 2017, I got a call from HR letting me know that the case was, was um, that the social workers found guilty 
of the relationship with the father and they fired her. And I asked them, was they going to go back and open my case because the damage she done done and um, remove my son with, with, with no, no reason and put my son in danger. And was they going to prosecute her? And they told me they was done with the case. I could do it, but they closed the, They fired her and they said that's all they was going to do. So I'm still to this day fighting. This was, um, I think this was uh, January 2017. So she gave me all the ARs to call and have them and tell them that they need to open up the case. This is the HR told me that. She said they have to go back and open this case up because the case is tainted because of what the social worker and the father had a relationship and she did nothing right in the, in, in the um, behalf of the child. So I, I've been crying and telling my story to every HR I was on the case, but they don't want to go back and, and, and open it. So when I went, to, we tried to file a 388 on this in, um, I think it's April, what was it? I think April 2017, I think. For 388 to, to petition the court to reopen my case and go back to the case when the social worker had the case because it's, she did so much influence on the case because of the allegation that she had my son. She, my son was telling me that the father and her were coercing him. When it's time for him to have interviews with people, they would, she would come over. She would spend a night from Friday to Sunday or Saturday, and she would coach him whole, the whole time with a voice recorder, telling them what to say to the police, to the social worker, the forensic interview, so he had the story down pat. So by her okay, her coercing him. Mm. When when did you find that out? I found this out um, during the time. When did David tell me this? He he told me all this was in March. When 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 the new allegation um, opened, that's when he had told um, told me what the social worker and the father was doing to him. And he even told that to the to the detective and he told that to the social worker at the time. But no one is 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 only thing they did was move the case, but they didn't want to hear what my son had to say about that social worker. Because that social worker was at the was um our case was still there at that at that time. So they was trying to really not they was listening to him but they didn't do anything until the detective jumped in and that's when they moved the case. But I had told the uh, the turn affairs where my son was telling me that what they was doing to him. So, and that's when he did the investigation. He was calling me periodically, let me know how the case was going. And he said the father had uh, told everything that he did have a relationship with her because he told him it was he was going to go to jail. So he fooled around and told on a social worker. So um, then that's when I heard, and like I said, in January 2017, that it was uh, what my son said was right and that they fired her. But everything my son been saying is the truth, but no one wanted to believe what he's saying. But if he told about the social worker and the father was having a relationship, I don't understand why they don't want to understand about the abuse. But like, but we still going back and forth with the case. But the, the commissioner and the minors counsel and all them, had but they had this thing about me about me coaching and but when we had a hearing in two thousand 
this year, last month, um, in February the 1st, they had subpoenaed the social worker and the therapist, um, the father attorney did. And they backfired on her because they thought she was going to come in there lying and saying things about me, but she didn't. She said that she don't believe I ever coached Shailen. I'm influencing the child. And even a social worker said that, and the commissioner got angry. They like that she said that. And she said, do you know that, um, she said, why are you defending the mother so much? And she said, I'm not defending the mother. I'm defi- defending my client. But they was on this, um, this the, the therapist so hard because they didn't like the fact that she didn't have nothing bad to say about me. And she was looking out for the best interest of the child. And so she got mad and gave the father a monitor visit and for them to do the co-joint therapy again for the second time, which the first therapist told him that no, because of the, how my son is afraid of him. But the commissioner keep pushing and keep pushing. Now she says the child don't have co-joint therapy with the father. She wants the father to have a monitor visit with the child that hasn't seen the father almost two years. And if he don't, if the child don't get back with the father, I'm going to put the child in foster care. And and that's where we're at now. And I'm still fighting for justice for me and my son because of what a social worker that did to my case. And I don't even understand why am I still in this situation when they already found the social worker guilty. And I just wanted that's to share my story with the listeners. It... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, no. You wanted to share your story because what? I could. Someone else could be well, going through the same thing I'm going through, and I just want it, we'll let everybody know that they need to get a get Vincent as attorney. He's a very compassionate, very caring attorney that I ever had, and he will fight for you. And the social worker and the court need to, somebody need to look into what they're doing to our children. It's not right. Well, man, I want to thank you for your call. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Oh, my question. I have a question. I've got a question. Oh. I'm sorry. I accidentally cut you off. What did you say? You had a question? Yeah, my question is, what age do is when my son to be able to speak for himself without them um, forcing him when he's afraid? And when would the court listen to him? What age um, would that be for my child? He's 11 now. Um, there's a statute in California that this, that says when the when the key, when the child turns 12, um, the court has to start considering uh, his uh, his wishes. So okay. there's no magic age, but it's usually the, at 12 the child starts to start considering it. But those were in family law cases. This is a juvenile case, and I would say that right now the child should be uh, listening to. Okay. Um, you know, or should be listen, listening to your child. But anyway, thank you for your call. I appreciate the call in. Okay, thank you. So that caller indicated that uh, she wanted to help people where this might be happening. About, it's been about three months, maybe 90 days ago, 
we settled a case against a social worker in the county of Los Angeles, Department of Children and Family Services. This is another case where the social worker had influenced uh, the court and the court system against uh, a mother who had children removed from her. And it turned out that the, the father, uh, who was not with the mother, had uh, was having a relationship with the social worker. And the social worker was making all of these wild allegations against the mother. And the mother kept telling people, it's not accurate, it's not accurate, it's not accurate. The mother found out quite by accident um, that the father and the mother were, excuse me, that the father and the social worker were involved in a romantic relationship. And the evidence that she had was, she finally got this evidence, she had taken a picture or pictures of the social worker coming out of the motel room with the father. It turns out the mother <clears throat> found out that the social worker was uh, infatuated with the father. The father wanted to get his child, one of five children, away from the mother and into his custody because he didn't want to pay the mother child support. Allegations were made, and all five of the children uh, were taken away from the mother. And you can imagine the mother saying this in the juvenile court system, and nobody was listening to her. And the child, and the children remained out of the mother's home. Even four of the children who weren't even the father's children, he didn't care. He just wanted this child, uh, so he didn't have to place or didn't have to pay child support. And um, the woman finally came to us, and I listened to her story, and it was the most surreal thing I had ever heard. And I've been doing this 30 years. Uh, been an attorney 30 years, been doing juvenile dependency, you know, about 27 of those of those years. <clears throat> and I had heard rumors of these types of things happening before. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to prove. And so we took on her case, we went to court, we got her children back, and then we sued the county on her behalf. And in... I mean, it seems like in December um, we were in the federal court at what's called a mandatory settlement conference or mediation. And to my surprise, the county and the social workers' attorneys wanted to uh, settle the case, and my client accepted a, a very large settlement. Um, but the reason why I mention this is because this woman who just called has the same type of case. And it's, you know, out of a different DCFS office with a different social worker. But we have a third case where the same thing has happened in our office, where someone has come to us with a story, and we um, are pursuing that uh, for her in the uh, judicial system. And it's, it's you know, all three of these cases dealt are dealing with a, social, a male parent, the father of a child, having a relationship with the female uh, social worker. <clears throat> in the past, over the years, I've had rumors, heard rumors, nothing that anybody could prove, of the reverse happening. Here's a story that um, I had heard, and I had actually been involved with this case, um, but, you know, I, I, I uh, 
wasn't in a position uh, to um, bring a, a lawsuit uh, out of this. And what happened was is that uh, allegedly, this is allegedly, by the way, a, a very attractive woman had her who was a who worked as a dancer had her children taken away, and they were suitably placed out of her care. A new social worker gets assigned to the case, and it's called an, a family unification social worker, where um, he allegedly told the the mother. Basically, if you have sex with me, I'll give you your children back. Um, and the mother complied, uh, and I, it's rumored that uh, even false documents were presented uh, to help convince everyone on the case that the mother had, was doing what she was supposed to do. And she got her children back. Now, of course, I'm telling you, this is allegedly, I have no personal knowledge of it, but you do hear these stories. And so I'm not sure, you know, maybe it's, maybe, you know, it's one of those things where human beings are the same all across the spectrum. And even social workers, there's corruption within the um, child welfare system. <clears throat> My only complaint is I don't think that there are any safeguards um, where the county or DCFS is checking or reviews these types of things because they do happen. And if you get a social worker on your side because, you know, you've you had sex with them or you, someone else has had sex with them or there's been some type of financial payoff, um, there's no check and no one would ever know. And there's a parent like this last woman sounding like, uh, you know, she's lost her mind uh, in court when she's telling people, hey, my social worker is having an affair with the father. Like, you know, who, when does that ever happen? Well, we have three cases in our office where that has happened in three different offices within Los Angeles County DCFS. So apparently it's happening statistically more than anyone ever thought. I'm going to take another call right now from area code 805, ending in 9-6. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Hello? Okay, we must have, be having some technical difficulties. Right now, I want to go back to what I was talking about earlier, and that was the relative placement. Uh, in California, there's a statute, uh, a law, that says um, children should be placed with relatives. Now, this statute is independent of the funding statute. And I know I get into these conversations in uh, court sometimes. Well, if we release the child to the relative, they won't get any money. And that becomes the, the county's main argument, um, which is contrary to this statute I'm about to read. And by the way, a lot of relatives tell me, hey, I don't want any money. Hey, I don't need money. Hey, I can wait for the money. Um, but it seems like when they want to throw, keep a child out of a relative's home, they tell the relative, oh, you're not going to get paid as if that's going to make some relatives change their mind. 
And by the way, it does sometimes make a difference and it does change the mind of a relative who may be barely making it financially themselves. Um, I'll tell you a funny story real quick. In San Francisco, they got sued and uh, for not placing a child with a relative. And what they do now is, it's a great idea, but what they do now is they have a service, a professional service, who goes around and looks for relatives for possible placement. And then they do they do computerized searches, they prepare a report, and they submit that to the court. And the report basically says, hey, I've talked to these 10, 15, or 50 relatives, and none of them want placement. And I thought, well, what a great idea um, for those county and the social workers to cover themselves to say that they have you know, check for relative placement. So um, I was on a case in San Francisco, and um, I, you know, I had this report, and I showed it to my client. And I was new to the case. And by the way, this report had been done several months prior. And my client told me she had never seen this report. Uh, her court-appointed attorney had never shown it to her. But I sh showed her the report, and, you know, Uncle Joe was listed on this report as being one of those people that uh, had been contacted but changed their mind about taking the child. Now, Uncle Joe happened to live in another state. And uh, I thought it was commendable that the social workers had contacted Uncle Joe or had found Uncle Joe without the assistance of my client. But my client told me, hey, you know what, I just spoke to Uncle Joe and, you know, it sounded like he wanted to take the child. And I asked her, I said, well, did he say it? You know, did he say he wanted to keep, take the child? She says, well, no, not exactly. And she told me, you know, a story that, just, you know, a, a story about that conversation that just didn't make sense to me. So um, I call Uncle Joe because his name's right there in the report and telephone number and address and everything. So I call the guy. And I introduced myself and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, hey, did you or are you able to take this child so the child doesn't have to be in foster care and the child um, uh, can be with family? And I was shocked by what he told me. He said, yes, I did want to take the child, but the social worker or the person who called me talked me out of it. I said, what do you mean they talked you out of it? Well, until, instead of telling me all the good things about taking the child, they told me all the negative things that could happen or that would happen. And um, they basically changed my mind. That, you know, made me say I didn't want the child. And so that's what I said. And I said, well, what kind of questions did they ask you? Now, granted, this is before the reform, the, the foster care and relative reform uh, legislation had that law right now where it was easy to get a relative, a child out of foster care. Well, she, she said the caller told, he said the caller told me, number one, hey, you know what, if you work, it's going to be hard for you to take this child because you're going to have to put the child in daycare and 
you're going to have to pay for that out of your pocket. Well, although that might be true, the child would have to be in daycare, it's false. The county who took this child has to give them funds to put the child into daycare. I said, well, what else did they tell you? And she said, well, she asked me, did I have medical insurance for the child? And of course, I said, no, I didn't have medical insurance for myself. So I surely wouldn't have it for the child. And the caller to allegedly told him, well, you're going to have to pay if the child gets sick. It was things of that nature that they were talking about, and the caller subtly uh, convinced the person not to take the child. Now, by the way, if a child is in Medicare, uh, doesn't have insurance uh, through, the, through the parents, the child has to be put on Medi-Cal. That's just, you know, the law. So the caller was doing everything to convince the, the family member not to take the child, and, and even telling to the extent, in my opinion, telling the caller false information. Now, a lot of you would say, hey, why do you think a social worker would do that? And I tell people this all the time. The money for the child that the county collects from the federal government uh, by the way, it draws from a $70 billion fund, annual fund from the federal government, um, follows the child. So a large extent of that money follows the child. So if you have a child in the county, city and county of San Francisco, and suddenly this child is moved to New York, guess where that money goes? goes to New York, follows the child. So it's as if the county, the home county, is going to be losing money, losing a sale because of transfer of a child. I get relatives that tell me all the time, the social worker told me, because I live out of town, you know, I'm in Las Vegas and the case is in L.A., that I can't get the child. Just straight out, I can't get the child. That's a big fat lie or it's a huge mistake by the social worker. But there is an incentive for the social worker to say that, and that is L.A. won't get the money for the child. I want to refer you right now to um, something uh, called Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 309. And I've talked about this before on, you know, on the air. But it's such an important law, and I don't think I hear it used enough in the courtroom. And it says 309, you can Google this yourself, 309A, upon delivery to the social worker of a child who has been taken into temporary custody under this article, comma, the social worker shall immediately investigate the circumstances of the child and the facts surrounding the child being taken into custody and attempt to maintain the child with the child's family through the provision of services. The social worker shall immediately release the child. Let me read that again. The social worker shall immediately release the child 
to the custody of the child's parent, comma, guardian, comma, or relative, comma, regardless of the parent's, comma, guardian's, comma, or relative's immigration status, unless one or more of the following conditions exist. We're going to go through those conditions in a second, but A lot of social workers, when they detain a child, do not immediately release to a parent, guardian, or relative. And relative is defined later in the code, and without reading specifically what that says, a relative is usually a person related by marriage, by blood, um, to the fifth degree of consanguity. Um, and relative is also design, uh, defined as a what they call a non-relative caretaker who basically is a close family friend. So, from the very beginning, the social worker shall release the child to a relative. And now a lot of times they're saying with this reform, um, they're saying, oh, well, the relative hasn't been checked out. Well, that's only if the relative is going to receive funding. They have to be checked out, you know, with all those circumstances. But 309, Section 309 is clear. Hey, look, if you're a relative, you, you get the kid. Period. End of story. And in my practice, and in what I see, and I talk to colleagues and other attorneys, that doesn't always happen. <clears throat> and I'm going to guess it happens 50% of the time. And the other 50% of the time, you know, there's a huge problem. Well, there's something else I want to mention to you right here. There's another statute in the Welfare and Institutions Code which says the type of relatives who get preference, okay? And by memory, I, 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 I seem to recall it's grandparents, aunts and uncles, great-grandparents, adult siblings, adult siblings. Those people have pre precedence over, you know, uh, cousin Jane, who is, you know, our third cousin on her mother's side. But what I see happening frequently is that because cousin Jane is friends with the social worker who, or who made the report of the child abuse, Cousin Jane gets the kid before grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or adult sibling. And by the way, when that happens, it's not the law. So you have to make sure that you or your attorney call the social worker on this type of placement. Now, there was important here because um, one of the I think this might be an amendment in the last two years. It says, regardless of the relative's immigration status. Let me tell you something that happened in a case. Maybe this was two years ago, two and a half years ago. I'm in San Bernardino County, and I'm arguing for about four children to be released to the maternal grandmother and grandfather. Now. 
the maternal grandmother and grandfather were from a South American country or Central American country, Central American country. Um, and the county council argued, and the grandfather, by the way, and the grandmother had come up to uh, San Bernardino because they were concerned about their grandparent, uh, their grandchildren, uh, and because they were, I think, because they were just Latinos, you know, the uh, the county council, the social workers' attorney argued that the children should not be released to these people because they were here illegally. I, I was shocked when she said that, a little horrified. I looked at the judge, who was also kind of shocked that she said it, because I, I, I speculate that the judge knew what the law was. But let's assume they were here illegally, okay? And this is what I told the judge. Assuming that they are illegal, it doesn't, the law specifically says, it doesn't matter. It's regardless of the relative's immigration status. You have to release the children to these relatives. But here's the funny thing about this case. Unbeknownst to the county council and the social worker, the grandparents had special types of visas and passports. It turns out that the grandfather, well, he happened to be a world-famous heart surgeon. And he even trained doctors at Walter Reed. He, as an ongoing basis, would train doctors at Walter Reed Medical Center, um, which is a big army facility, on heart surgery. And the guy had this passport and visa. I've never seen it. It was it lasted like for 20 years. And I think we were in year two of like the 20-year passport. Then on top of that, it turned out that the grandmother was a world-famous dental surgeon. And she also had a similar passport and visa to come and go from the United States whenever they wanted to. When the oh one last thing in their hometown, which is the capital of their country, they own the main hospital. So when I told the judge all of this, instead of releasing the parents, the children to the grandparents, because the social workers thought they were here illegally and they were run off back to their home country with the kids. The judge surprised everyone and released the children back to the mother, my client. I tell you the story only because you see how they want to treat relatives. Now they had made allegations against my client. Some of them were serious allegations. But instead of dealing with the issue at that trial court level and possibly at the appellate level, because the judge was pretty sure that I was going to appeal. I like to appeal things when judges, I think, make incorrect decisions. Um, the, the judge gave the children back to my client, which was great. But they never had to address this whole relative issue. So let me tell you what the exceptions are to that rule. 
That has to happen unless the child has no parent, guardian, or relative willing to provide care for the child. Now, when does that ever happen? Well, I guess it happens once in a while. But the majority of cases, the child has a relative who's willing to prepare or provide care for the child. Number two, you don't do that when continued detention of the child is a matter of immediate and urgent necessity for the protection of the child and there are no reasonable means by which the child can be protected in his or her home or the home of a relative. Now, one of the things that I see a lot in these types of cases, especially when there's a, uh, a DCFS uh, special unit, I can't think of the name of the unit, but they work closely in and hand in hand with the uh, with police, the police mart, the mart group, uh, with police agencies. They argue that the child should not be placed in the home of a relative because it may interfere with the criminal prosecution of a relative or of the parent. I was recently involved in a case in Los Angeles County where the, I forget if it was a sheriff or a local PD, had written information about a relative who could take the children that implicated the relative in the crime, and, and the crime was growing marijuana. And we kept fighting and fighting, and it took us about three, two or three hearings before the child, the children were released to this relative. And it turned out that the social worker who blamed the police officer, the detective, wrote in her report false information. And we later learned that uh, allegedly this came from the police detective. And the judge actually, to her credit, had a, like a mini hearing to flesh all these issues out. And it was learned that the information that the social worker wrote uh, allegedly given to her by the police officer was false. You know, it was just false information trying to implicate this relative to keep the children out of the relative's care. Now, a lot of people would ask, well, why do you think the police officer would do that? What happens in a lot of cases, and I see it in a lot of cases over the last 27 years, 28 years, when you keep people's children in foster care, they have a tendency to give police information that they want. The police allegedly use that as a tool to punish, prosecute, and obtain information from criminal defendants. We got your kids in foster care. They can't even be released to grandma or grandpa or auntie or uncle. And most people don't care about going to jail, but they do care about where their kids go because, you know, a lot of people know out there in the community that children are injured all the time in foster care. They're um, physically abused, emotionally abused, sexually abused. Now, there's great foster parents out there. Don't let me lead you to believe that this happens to every foster child because it doesn't, but it does happen. And people are aware of this in the community. Long ago, uh, many years ago, I used to have a practice where I represented foster parents accused of their child abuse in um, administrative courts. 
and you know juvenile judges never hear about these types of cases but you'd be surprised about what you know foster parents are allegedly doing to foster children anyway so that's why a, a police officer may want to keep the child away from a relative there's a third reason um about not releasing a child to a relative where there there is substantial evidence that a parent, guardian, or custodian of the child is likely to flee the jurisdiction of the court. And um, used to get that a lot when people were allegedly illegal aliens from Mexico. Oh, they're going to flee to Mexico with the child. Um, that, that view has softened, um, but every once in a while I still hear that. Um, that's kind of a hard thing to prove by a social worker. Uh, there's a fourth reason by not giving a child to the relative. Uh, the child has left the placement in which he or she was placed by the juvenile court. In other words, the child has run away. Lately, I've been hearing this, and the child's not running away from the relative home. The child is running away from the foster care placement. Um, I heard a story from a family recently that... Um, uh, actually kind of a sad story uh, that the child alleged that while she was in foster care uh, she was physically mentally and sexually abused uh, by the foster parent and that um, she was used to do uh, you know the household chores and to cook and to clean and stuff like that so she ran away and apparently according to the parents nobody in the court system would listen to her or take her uh, allegations seriously. I don't know if it's true. Uh, we'll find out. We're considering taking on their case as a civil rights lawsuit violation. There's another reason why you um, wouldn't give the child, the social worker wouldn't give the child uh, to the relative, and that is the parent or other person ha having lawful custody of the child Voluntary, voluntarily surrendered the physical custody of the child pursuant to Section 1255.7 of the Health and Safety Code and did not reclaim the child within the 14-day period specified in Subdivision E of that section. That section really deals with, in my opinion, the parent or legal guardian uh, surrendering the child, but I guess it could, uh, uh, could apply to also a relative. Now, here's one of my secret strategies. Um, that I use to get a child placed with relatives. I, if I represent you, I tell you as a parent, give me 25 names of relatives and uh, related by marriage, by blood, uh, or close family friends. And I tell you, it could be a person anywhere in the world. So a lot of people have already been told oh, the relative has to live in Los Angeles County in, or in the home county. That's just simply not true. Social workers don't want to investigate all of the relatives that you give them because it takes a lot of time. It probably takes two, maybe three hours to do a thorough investigation on a relative wherever they live. So they don't want to necessarily spend that amount of time on 25 people. So what happens is, is that when you give them 25 names or 50 names, because the father probably has 25 of his own, um, all of a sudden, you know, Uncle Joe, who they didn't like in the first place, 
suddenly becomes a prime candidate to get the children. They kind of change their mind about Uncle Joe. Um, and the strategy worked pretty good, such that maybe 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, I was standing in a courtroom in Riverside County in front of one of my uh, favorite judges, and I told them on the record and told him on the record that um, you know, there have been 25 names to uh, to the um, to the social worker's attorney, and we wanted all of them investigated for immediate placement of the child. He then accused me of uh, harassing the social worker. Accused me of harassing the social worker on the record. And uh, I kind of chuckled to myself, which I think made him even madder. But I, I pointed out to him that in Section 309, uh, it requires the social worker to investigate all relatives, not just, you know, one or two. Um, but that didn't seem to make a difference. And um, I think what happened was, uh, if I recall correctly, they investigated one, and that person was denied, came back again. They investigated the second one. And they magically decided that that person, who they already knew about, uh, was it going to be a sufficient relative to take care of the children? Take care of the children, which I didn't doubt from the beginning. But it was just interesting because they realized that um, I wasn't going to go away, and you know, painfully I'd go relative by relative. And that's not actually the law, in my opinion. You know, when I give you 25 names as a social worker or county council, you're supposed to investigate all of them. I think that's what the law does says, and I think the law, the rule, the California rule of court does use the term investigate all relatives or something like that. So um, that is part of the strategy I use to get children placed with relatives out of foster care. Uh, I tell people all the time, having a child in a strange foster care situation is like being in custody if you are arrested for a and if you get the child released to a friendly relative, it's like being out on bail while you fight the case. It's just a world of difference. Because your visitation can be more liberal, more frequent. Um, you know, when that case I was telling you about the lying uh, uh, deputy or detective, um, my client went from one or two visits per week, I think two. So now she visits every day um, from afternoon to early evening, every day. So you see the difference between placement in a foster home and placement with a friendly relative. But it has to be friendly relative. You know, sometimes you get these relatives who are worse than the social worker and have their own opinions about things. And, you know, every family has that. But you just want to make sure your children aren't placed with those types of people um, because it's going to make it harder for you uh, to have those children placed in your home or to get the children back. I'm involved in a case in San Bernardino right now where we'd get the child back. My client would get their children back, except for her mother wants to keep the children and adopt them. And we're about to have a big trial on that. 
show this weekend. Next weekend, we're going to continue to talk about relative placement. We're going to also talk about how to win a trial in CPS court. So I'll talk to you next week on the radio.